Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 651 for August 29th, 2020, and I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. I could not possibly be more excited to announce that this week our guest is Bart Bouchatz with Programming by Stealth, episode 100. Yay! <laughs> A century of Programming by Stealth. That is, that's pretty impressive for it, for an audio podcast learning to program. I'm pretty sure we're probably the longest running one out there. Yeah. And I mean, I knew I said it was, you know, X was an arbitrary number, but I'll be honest, I didn't think it was over a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> so th- there's uh, I, when, I want to tell the audience what we did here in mm. Programming by Stealth 99, or uh, probably the, the last time we talked about Programming by Stealth, we... Um, we're talking about that it was coming up on 100 and Bart said, uh, there should be cake. So what happened? I, I said Bart- that a lot, by the way, just oh. if, you want- <laughs> if you want to get to my heart, there should be cake. That, so that's just a general life philosophy then. Well, yes. so what happened today? Well, I sat down to podcast as normal and my, my darling beloved seemed very interested in knowing when we were podcasting today. Uh-huh. It seemed odd. Uh-huh. And Alison seemed very keen on doing video, which seemed odd. And I, of course, should have put two and two together. But anyway, I sat down to podcast and I was literally in synchrony. Steve handed Alison cake and my darling beloved handed me cake. Yay. So we have uh, we're all on a sugar high now. that wasn't easy to do in a pandemic to get cake delivered into two locations on other sides of the globe uh, simultaneously indeed because my darling beloved is as we call it here cocooning so he couldn't go out shopping and i do the shopping and i obviously can't buy myself a surprise cake (laughs) (laughs) doesn't work very well and we don't go to the grocery store at all we don't go to the grocery store at all because we're old and don't want to die. And so uh, we uh, have somebody delivered to us and a lovely woman yesterday picked out a cake for us. Oh, <laughs> anyway, I thought that uh, it would be fun to celebrate together, do high fives with the audience, even though sadly they don't get cake out of this. No, they can, they get a photograph of us having cake, <laughs> which is probably the one thing worse than no cake is seeing other people have cake. <laughs> well, technically, in my announcement of the show, I could say, get yourself a piece of cake. Right. Have someone send you cake before yeah. you listen yeah, to the see show. If you can figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> this is a show where we teach how to do things. We don't we don't fish for you. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. You, you should catch your own cake. <laughs> However, that works. <laughs> well, on top of being excited about 100, I have had so much fun. We're going to be talking about the challenge uh, to to create a time sharing solution. And uh, luckily you gave us about a year and a half to work on it, right? I mean, it's been months. And I have had so much fun with this. And I have discovered one thing. How how do you be done? Oh, if you ever figure that out, will you let me know? (laughs) I just keep saying, oh, okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to commit. Oh, wait, wait, that one little thing right there. Okay. Wait, okay. I just got it. You know what? This, I I should probably left justify that. There's one thing bugging me. I've got one more thing to do. Did you notice the time when I was still messaging you last night about tweaks to my solution? I believe it was well past four in the morning, your time. Well, 13 minutes past. 13 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> 
So no, I don't know the answer to that question. How do you stop? Right. Okay. You have to figure that one out. Well, good. Well, the other thing um, that I think is fun here is uh, Bart and I are both going to talk about our solutions. And we basically had to do paper, scissors, rocks because we both wanted to go first. I told Bart that I wanted to go first because going after him is like being the comedian that goes on after Robin Williams. You know, this is not a not a good position. And what did you say back to me? That's funny because I thought exactly the same thing. <laughs> Which flatters me dearly. And maybe maybe when we get into it, you can uh, we can talk about why these uh, why we both felt this way. But I think we'll have you uh, actually kick things off. Cool. Well, basically, I intentionally set an extremely open challenge because as far as I'm concerned, this was the the, the icing on the proverbial cake, if you'll excuse more cake. <laughs> um, so we're wrapping up our JavaScript and this was going to be the last challenge. And so the whole point I'm trying to make is that we now know enough to do a real app, a genuine real world solving an actual problem app. And in the real world, you have you know what you're trying to achieve, as in you know the problem to be solved, but you generally don't have someone telling you how. Okay. That's kind of your job, right? A customer comes to you with a problem, it's your job to go from problem to solution, which involves thinking, designing, coding, testing, delivering. So it involves all of that. And so by being really open-ended, I'll let you do it all. So basically, the challenge was simply two podcasters live in different parts of the world. They need to communicate show recording times without the need to do mental arithmetic. Provide a web app that can share a specific time across time zones. The time being communicated should be embedded in the URL somehow, so it doesn't need to be typed in by the recipient. Full stop. End of story. (laughs) And so you and I designed extremely different solutions to that one fundamental problem to be solved, and that's... That was kind of what I hoped would happen. And that's why we both get to talk about our solutions, because they're so different. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I th- I think I inferred more restrictions than that, that you didn't technically say. Uh, but I'll get into that when I when I talk about mine. Well, you were already excited about what you wanted to do. So I just made sure to write my English so I wouldn't stop you. <laughs> okay, okay, sounds good. <laughs> And if I'm completely honest, I knew what I wanted to do, because as you can probably guess, this isn't all that hypothetical. (laughs) I run a panel show once a month with people from all over the world, and I am forever dealing with time zone confusions. What I want to do is paste a link into... Okay, there's something weird going on. My spacebar just went nuts. Uh Uh-oh. Look for you. Because I wasn't touching my keyboard. Anyway, that was weird. Let's hope that doesn't happen again. That's usually um, my headphone wire touching my trackpad when that happens. Let's see. Anyway, um, so I just want to be able to copy and paste a link into the email that goes out to the to the panel for Let's Talk Apple. Whereas you've been in love. Okay, so basically, you're a better human being than me because what you <laughs> wanted to do was help yourself choose a time that's convenient for everyone. So you wanted to simultaneously see what would be good for Alistair and for Helma and for you. Mm -hmm. I was just interested in dictating a time and clearly (laughs) communicating it. So my solution is all about telling people, whereas your solution is about seeing simultaneous times in multiple countries. Okay. So you're... Definitely got more heart in it, but mine is sort of very to the point. So you know, life's too short then. to figure out if it's three in the morning for somebody else. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And I guess okay. To be to be fair to myself, we I use Doodle to let people vote, and so when people are done voting, all I need to do is to say, "This is it, folks." 
Right. So I guess right. I'm not entirely a meanie, but yeah, maybe <laughs> a little. <laughs> so I guess that's a good run in to say. So the first thing is I I picked this challenge because you and I both had something we wanted to deliver for real. So I went out of I, I did this is this is not a sample solution. This is a real service on the internet that is now free for everyone to use. If you go to dish dash this-ti.me, in other words, this time, but the .me is on the end, then you will find my time-sharing web service. It is live. It will stay there. That is now something that I have delivered to the world. Yeah, I'll probably get a few tweaks, but it is a real, genuine web app. Cool. So, now, one thing I'd like the audience to know that I found interesting was you bought the URL before you had written a line of code. Oh yeah. You knew many, you wanted many, to many, do many, it many and, and, and you and you knew you had a vision in your head and you started from that vision and then worked your way into actually coding it up, which I thought which is completely different from how I went at it. Well, my personality profile says prefers economy of effort, which I transcode as is a lazy sod. <laughs> but apparently what it actually means is that my personality type is one that prefers to fully think out a solution before getting stuck in. So I will spend weeks noodling something. And then when finally the penny drops and all you know, the universe all lines up, then I just get stuck in. And you can vouch for the fact that was it Wednesday, I said, I haven't written a line of code. And yeah. it's now Saturday and we're recording. And I started uh, last October, I think. And, so, <laughs> <laughs> and I've worked probably, I don't know, on average, at least 10 or 15 hours a week on it. So it's, yeah. uh, I mean, we will acknowledge Bart has the 10,000 hours. I don't, but I put, I got a lot under my belt doing it this way. My personality profile, by the way, uh, was on a, a quadrant scale and the four quadrants were, um, uh, data gathering, planning, something else and doing. And I forget what the third one was analysis and doing. And my, my profile was all, but like the last 3% was in doing. <laughs> there was no data gathering. There was no uh, no planning. A little tiny smidge of analysis and just do. So I get a lot done. Whether it's the right thing is just a complete you know random case. So that's interesting because I am definitely the person who does as little as possible doing. Economy of effort means as little as possible doing. Okay. Okay. <laughs> lots of planning. Lots of information gathering. Yeah, I, I think I must have gone through about fifty designs. But like Einstein's thought experiments, they only ever existed in my head. I have over 40 pages of notes in notability on just this on just this part of the assignment. Uh 43 pages handwritten scribbled notes as I worked my way through this. Uh mine always end up in the bin cuz they're unposted notes and they're just they're just my temporary memory. Oh, that's what this is, but I can go back to my temporary memory cuz it's a notability. Anyway, I don't think I could decipher mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't say it was decipherable. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so as I said, the problem I solved was simply create link where I specify a time in my time zone. I send you the link and you see the time in your time zone. I don't need to know what your time zone is. You don't need to know what mine is. The, the, the end result should be that you and I both see our local representation of the one actual time in reality. So to me, that was a game of two halves. I need a UI for creating the shared link and I need a UI for viewing the shared link. 
And so I decided very quickly that I didn't want the two visible at the same time because that would be confusing. So I went with the tabbed interface, the panes, as Bootstrap calls them. So I have a share a time pane and a shared time pane. And when you come to the website with just a bare URL, you won't see the shared pane at all because nothing has been shared with you. But if you arrive via a link that has a time embedded in it, then you will see that tab. And not only will you see it, it'll actually be the default tab. Okay. So okay. if you're coming to share, you just go to the bare URL and the first thing you'll see is how to share. And if you arrive because of someone shared with you, the first thing you'll see is what was shared with you. And if you then later decide you like the site, you want to share too, well, then you just switch to the other tab. Okay. Actually, one of the optimizations I put in at three o'clock in the morning yesterday rather than at four o'clock <laughs> um, was it suddenly dawned on me that the default time, if I've had a time shared with me, the default should be what was shared. So then I can make a small tweak and send back like, oh, actually, no, I think we should move it forward by an hour. So normally the default time is today, an hour from now. But if you arrive with a shared, then the default to share is actually the time that was shared. That sounds really complicated, but I think you get what I mean. Yeah, I think so. Um, and then I guess the last thing then is I sort of want to do my best to guess your time zone so you never have to think about it. And the browser's locale is usually good enough for that. So I do have an interface where you can change your time zone if I've guessed wrong, but I'm rather hoping people don't need it. And actually, the first draft I showed you it was actually one of my poorer design decisions. I put the sidebar on the left because that's where sidebars go. <laughs> but we Westerners read from left to right, which meant that the first thing you saw was the piece of UI that I think you should rarely need. <laughs> that's why it's good. In your four days of development, you didn't have time to show it to people. I had people all over the world poking mine and telling me, well, this looks stupid. I don't like that. This is too loud. This is too dark. This is, you know, this is in the wrong place. Why did you put it in this order? So I had, I had a lot of, um, I had staff to uh, tell me what was wrong with mine. And you had one beta tester. I, one, yes, indeed. When you did actually find a bug, which is down to a space in Los Space Angeles. Oh, and, and no end in trouble. Mine, mine was saved, by the way, by Klaus Wolf fixed that for me and did a pull request to my clock to fix it. Oh, hey. Because Los guess. Angeles has a space in it, but in the official time zone list, it's an underscore. Yeah, my code basically has a regular expression in and out to go between what I call human readable time zones and IANA time zones, because they're actually that's actually the official standard, the IANA time zone string. Okay. So I actually have a function called to and from human, but I forgot to call that function once. <laughs> One place in my code I didn't call the function, and that broke it because you live in Los Angeles. <laughs> so there we go. Um, and then the other thing, actually, that I, I sort of had, um, and I get to put some credit your way here. So if you're if the problem to be solved is receiving a time, all you really care about is your time zone. And I've probably guessed it right, so you probably never need to touch the About You uh, card. Okay. But if you're a sharer, I'm hoping you like the service and will keep coming back. And if I've guessed wrong, I don't want you to have to keep correcting the site, keep telling it, no, really, I live in Los Angeles. No, I still live in Los Angeles, right? Mm -hmm. It'd be really frustrating if, and maybe you're using a VPN so the browser thinks you're somewhere else or whatever. I mean, you can see how it could end up getting a wrong impression or maybe 
your you know you're a belgian expat who keeps their computer set in flemish because that's the language you like uh. to work in but you're actually in dublin or whatever and then the other thing is when you're doing a share as a convenience i allow you to enter your name so if you don't enter a name the recipient sees your time and their time mm-hmm. but if you do share your name the recipient sees your time and say allison's time which is nice and friendly so you can type in your name but again do you really have to type it in every single starting time like is that really a good user experience if you're a regular user of the site so i wanted the ability to somehow save those two pieces of information. And this is definitely now, scratching your own itch because Bart is going to use totally. this all the time. And Bart wants to yes. say, this is my time zone and my name is Bart and I never want to do it again. Precisely. Exactly. But how, where do, how do you save somebody's information? Aha. Uh-huh. So my first stab at it was basically, well, we're embedding stuff in URLs. So why not embed those two things in the URL and then tell people, here's your custom bookmark. Hmm. So if you arrive via the custom bookmark, I pre-populate those two fields from okay. the URL. And so there was a, a an input called personal link with a button to generate a personal link. But that looks awfully similar to the generate a shared link, which is actually the main point of the site. And it was on the right instead of the left. So the first link button you saw was the wrong one. Yeah. So again, that's why it had to move to the right instead of to the left. And so you can generate a shared link. And what you'll see on the end is it actually just depends to the end of the URL. My my TZ equals Europe slash Dublin and my name equals Bart. And so every time the page loads, it just checks for my TZ and my name. And if it finds those two in the URL, it pre-populates the field. So you could bookmark that and that would work. But a lot of people don't use bookmarks anymore. Yeah. So I also decided to use this as an excuse to introduce you to the concept of cookies. So I also have a button, save to cookie, and that writes a cookie with those two pieces of information. So what actually happens when the page loads is the first thing that gets checked is the URL, because I figure if it's right there in the address bar, that's what you really, really mean. If it doesn't find it in the URL, it checks the cookie. If it doesn't find it in the cookie, it asks the browser for its default. That's sort of the order I decided to go in. Um, And the other thing, of course, is because cookies have the potential to be problematic, there's also a giant big red delete your cookie button. And not only is there a delete your cookie button, it says really clearly your cookie currently stores your time zone as Europe slash Dublin and your name as Bart. So there is 100% transparency here in these cookies. These are the two pieces of information, and I'm happy to destroy them at your command. Just push the big red button. But what you made very clear to me in your initial critique was that that was really confusing for most people who don't need it. So uh, by default, it's hidden. Thanks to a wonderful tool you introduced me to because you use it to make your interface better called the Bootstrap Collapse plugin, which we haven't talked about, but you discovered all by yourself. (laughs) And I've now used as well. And basically it allows you to have a toggle which expands and contracts a piece of your UI and it slides up and down really pretty. I don't think it's a plugin. I think it's built in. Uh, you are correct that it is built in, but it is called a plugin in oh. Bootstrap Lingo. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, basically, it's the JavaScript-y part of Bootstrap rather than the um, make it look pretty part of Bootstrap. Mm-hmm. And Bootstrap calls those plugins. Because okay. they technically are jQuery plugins. If you oh, go, got you. Bootstrap is a jQuery plugin and a bunch of CSS. So oh, Okay. Yeah. Um, so... I get, the other reason actually I wanted to use cookies um, and in fact to to embed stuff in the URL was because we're about to switch to the server side. 
And cookies actually predate JavaScript. Cookies were invented before JavaScript ever came into being. So the normal way to interact with cookies is actually not through JavaScript at all. So cookies are actually embedded in HTTP headers. So the way it works is the web server. So that, okay, so you go to a web page, your browser sends a request to the server and the server answers back with the page. And in the answer back to you, the server can specify HTTP headers. And one of those headers is cookie. And when a browser receives a cookie, it's supposed to save it. And the next time it goes to the same website, it should put the cookie in its request so that the server gets it. So the server basically, the server says, keep this for me. And then the browser hands it back is how cookies are supposed to work. And in this case, we don't even have a server because we're entirely on the client side. But when JavaScript was invented, they thought, well, why not let JavaScript interact with the cookies as well? Since the browser is storing the cookies anyway, why can't the browser store it for itself? So there is a JavaScript API for interacting with cookies called document.cookie. Uh, and so you can use JavaScript to write cookies, but the actual implementation is horrible. Like it's, oh, it's such an evil API to use. So thankfully the open source community has scratched that itch as it so often does. And there's a wonderful JavaScript library called uh, js-cookie. And uh, it has a beautifully clean interface uh, API for writing cookies. Basically, it's cookies.get, cookies.set, and cookies.remove. Oh, to I wonder get what the those cookies. three things do. <laughs> yeah, just imagine trying to figure that out. So the actual code for my cookie stuff is shockingly short, which is wonderful. Yeah. Back to that um, lazy sod part. Pardon? Back to the lazy sod part. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> Don't reinvent the wheel if someone's made a perfectly good wheel for you. Uh -huh. um, the other thing then is when it comes to manipulating the URL, so the, the description of how you embed stuff in the URL is basically you can attach something to the end of a URL, which is officially called a query string. And so you put a question mark and then the query string at the end of the URL. Yeah, you and taught us query, that. I think that was in Taming the Terminal, wasn't it? No, no. That or was did we do it here too? Wow, they're they're blending together. I thought it was I thought it was here. I you, thought it was when we did the HTTP stuff because we learned about curl. Oh, but and all no, those no, no! It was when we were doing the uh, HTTP gets for promises. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Okay, so we did it twice. We've done it here and in taming the terminal because I, I, yeah. Anyway, cool. But so using it made it stick for this assignment. Using it now, I absolutely know what it is, how it gets there, and how to use it. Excellent. And so question mark and then the query string. And so the query string consists of name value pairs where they're separated by ampersands. Mm -hmm. And it's name equals value ampersand to name equals value ampersand name equals value until the cows come home. And that all sounds very simplistic. And you can just break it up with a few regular expressions. But the problem is almost every character is a special character in a URL. <laughs> so they all have to be URL encoded. And so there are native JavaScript functions for doing that. Uh, URL encode, URL, uh, what is it? URL component, encode URI component, encode URI, decode URI, decode URI components. So, they exist. So what do they, they do? They're to, they're to build those URLs? Yeah, so URI component will assume that you're encoding a piece to become a single name or a single value. So if it contains an ampersand, it will replace it with the coding for ampersand, whereas encode URI will assume the ampersand should stay. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah, so depending hold on that, hold that thought because I've got a funny story to tell about that when we get to mine. <laughs> Aha. So you absolutely can with a combination of, what is it? There's a window.location.href will tell you the current URL of the page. And then you have these four encoding functions. And we all know how regular expressions work. That is all you need to know to roll your own URL processor. In my experience, processing URLs is icky because of all those special characters. And so I choose not to do it myself. And I used yet another third-party library, URI.js, which I adore, uh, which has basically in URI.js to get the current URL as an object, you just say new URI. And then there's a wonderful function called query that lets you set the query string and get the query string. And so I just basically use new URI.query to get and set my um, query strings. Okay. And the cool thing is you can actually encode anything into a URI. So I have an example you can pop into your JavaScript console if you're in the mood. If you go to this-tie.me, you can pop the example in. So you can say const my, my URL becomes equal to new URI in all caps. And then you, my URL becomes a URI object. And then you can say my URL.query. And you can pass it in the dictionary code word colon boogers, emoji colon the poop emoji. And then you can console.log my string, And you'll see it encoded the poop emoji as percent %f0%, %9f%, %92%a9. Well, if that isn't an advertisement for why to use that uh, particular plugin, I don't know what is. <laughs> Yeah, because just, you know, so that's very easy to encode and decode URLs with URI.js. Okay. And for the query string, it's not, you know, you can get by without, but URI.js will do every part of the URL. So you can say, give me just a file path, give me just a server name, give me just the protocol. Mm -hmm. Is it secure? Is it insecure? And so if you need to do a lot of URL processing, URI.js is an absolute godsend. Um, the other thing I have in my show notes to draw your attention to is that when you're working with URL data, you should be as suspicious of it as you are of form data, because you can edit a URL by typing, right? Mm -hmm. You can go to the address bar and muck with the URL. So you should assume that data is every bit as tainted as something coming from a text box. And now, you should assume who, who it could are contain you, anything. Who is you in this context? The programmer. So... In your code, when you consume the data in the URL, you should validate it as if it was form input. So oh, if you're because saying, your code is going to run on consumption as well as on creation. Right, but if you're creating, you don't you don't have to validate it because you're no, writing no, it. No, I know, but I'm, th I'm thinking of the code as creating it, but I forgot that the, our code also consumes it when, it when it arrives at the other end. Correct. So at the point oh. when you're consuming it, that's the point you need to validate it as if it was typed into a text box. Oh. And so like I've always hammered home with your forms, you should always validate. Well, you should definitely validate URL data because it really could be anything. So how do you uh, evalu evaluate it, though? Well, just if you're... Okay, so in, in my case, one of the things I'm expecting is a Unix timestamp. So I run it through a regular expression that says, are you made entirely of digits? And are you in the valid range for a timestamp, which is zero to so many, many hundreds of thousands. I looked it up on the internet. Um. And so basically, if you want it to be a, a Unix timestamp, don't assume it's a Unix timestamp, check. And if it's not a Unix timestamp, throw an error and call it a day. Someone's mucking about mm. with you, just stop. Okay. Mm. Um, and this is particularly important as we start to get to more client and server stuff, because if you send dodgy information back to the server 
and the server doesn't do proper data validation, all of a sudden you can end up with an SQL injection vulnerability or something because you didn't check that they hadn't typed drop tables into the address bar where you were expecting a Unix timestamp or something. Okay. So basically always validate your data from a URL. And the same, frankly, is true of a cookie. It takes a teeny tiny bit more work to muck about with a cookie. Uh, but if you Google edit cookies, you will very soon find that it's not difficult to edit the value of a cookie that a browser has stored for you. So I guess my takeaway is validate your cookies and validate your URL data. I'm um, starting page 44 of my notes. Write code to validate URLs. <laughs> V1.1. Well, look, you're never finished, right? We did say that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the only other thing I sort of wanted to say really about my solution, unless you have specific questions, which I'm always happy to answer. But I've, I titled this section of the show notes, Classes Nowhere and Everywhere. So... I did not write a single class of my own because in my solution, they're just what it, it basically, we have a massive toolbox at our disposal. We have many skills now. And one of those skills is writing object oriented code. And in this case, there was no problem that was that shape. There was no nail for me to hammer. Okay. So I didn't use that particular tool. But I kind of did, because I use lots and lots of classes. They just weren't mine. If you scratch the surface of moment.js, it's full of classes. They hmm. have a class to represent a time. They have a class to represent a time zone. So when you say moment, open parens, close parens, you get back an object built with a class that represents the current time. If you ask moment.tz for a time zone, you get back an object that was built with a class. They're just classes written by somebody else, but they're still classes. And when and you talked about uri.js, I distinctly heard the word new. You sounds, did, exactly. That sounds like a class exactly. to me. So again, more classes. Huh. And JS cookie is object-oriented, and jQuery is object-oriented, and mustache is object-oriented. <laughs> and I used my own, I add some of my own dog food. I have a useful JavaScript utility called human join that takes an array and does a nice human-friendly join. So it uses an ampersand with or without the Oxford comma and those kind of things. <laughs> and that's object-oriented. So I actually use lots of classes. I just didn't have to write any of my own, which is kind of the nicest way to use classes. Use I personally else. think you cheated, but <clears throat> we'll get to that in my solution. <laughs> right, but I, again, remember, I solved a really small problem. You solved, you, you went for a much bigger piece of pie. Are you saying I get extra credit points? Oh, heck yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> you're, you're, you did way more impressive work than I did. Way more impressive. Well, that makes The me last smile. thing I have here in my notes that I, I wanted to say was that sometimes object orientation is in disguise. So you very, very cleverly picked up on the keyword new, right? Mm -hmm. That immediately went ding, ding, ding in your head. There are objects involved. I saw the word new. Well, when you're using jQuery, you have never seen the word new. Right. That's a mm -hmm. fair thing to say. Mm -hmm. And yet when you use the dollar function, you're getting handed back objects. They're instances of a class. So the dollar function is something called a factory method. The dollar function calls new on your behalf and returns the result. So there is still a new happening. You're just not doing it. OK. And that paradigm, that concept of using factory methods, as they're called, is very common in JavaScript. I never caught the bug, so my code generally doesn't use factory methods. 
And so it's not something we've really talked about, but under the hood, moment.js, the moment function is a factory method. Moment.tz is a factory method. The dollar function is a factory method. Um, they're actually very common in JavaScript libraries. Hmm. So they're calling you on your behalf, but the bottom line is you're getting handed back an object. So there's still classes involved. There's still object orientation. So okay. they can be in disguise. Okay. Is there anything that I should have said about my solution that I haven't? Um, I don't think so, but we'll probably circle back to some of it, I think. Brilliant. Great. Uh, in that case, tell me about the thought process that went into your solution. Yes, it is clear that I lost the paper, scissors, rocks uh, <laughs> game that I got to go second. But I think this is I think this is real interesting to see these two different methods. Um, because Bart started with this vision and then just made it uh, in in three days, my my method was I still needed to learn how to do these things. Bart knew that he knew how to get a URL string to work. He already had that in his toolbox. I had to go to the store, buy the wrong one, go buy a different one, try to use a hammer to, to turn a screw. You know, I was I was making a mess, a, a dog's dinner of it uh, for quite a while. So I spent a lot of time just getting pieces to work. And then the very, very last thing I did was polish it. And luckily, we kept doing Taming the Terminal episodes, so mine got shinier and shinier over time, and I got a lot of feedback. And um, one of the things I did was I posted in our uh, Programming by Stealth channel in our Slack community. If you're not a member of that, we have a link in the show notes to podfeet.com slash Slack. And it was great. I had seven or eight people going, oh, move this here, you know, change the order, what I was talking about earlier. So I think my final finished product, if you can call anything finished, is <laughs> is much cleaner and easier to read and more understandable than when I when I first showed it to him. So well, remember, the bigger the problem you're trying to solve, the more important it is to get eyes that are not yours looking at it. Oh. So the fact that you going for a much more elegant solution means that you benefited a lot from those extra eyeballs. And I have to tell you, Steve is one of the best beta testers of anything on earth. He does things that I like for weeks, this, the search field of my little search box, the letters were blue. Uh, no, I'm sorry. The, mine says what time it is. It says the time in America slash Los Angeles. And that text was blue. And so he kept poking it. He wasn't poking at the, at the, the search box. He kept poking blue that because blue means link, right? I was like, oh man, how did I not? I mean, it's been that way for a really long time. Yeah, so yeah. Um, having a lot of people be able to poke it was good. But I want to I want to start with my starting point was I had the clock that we had made from PBS ninety two, um, and in that clock we were supposed to have um, use classes. That was when we were being told how to do things. We were supposed to use classes, and I had uh, two clocks. I had a local time and the time in another city. And in fact, I had at some point I had. Several of them, I'd five or whatever that you could you could set a bunch of different times, and they would all have you know be in alignment. Um, but I had a, a what I like to call the giant drop down of doom, which is a Donald Bird, uh, Donald Bird trademark. Um, it was horrible. It had hundreds and hundreds of cities in it. They were in alphabetical or in, in, in time zone order, which was lovely, but it just took you like an hour and a half to find, you know, Wellington. It was just, it was just awful. Actually, uh, yeah, Wellington is in there. So that was, um, that was problematic and I needed to get rid of that. Um, it also showed the 24-hour and 12-hour clock toggle, so I ended up keeping that in mind. Yours is all in 24-hour, which I know you love it, Bart, but I don't know what 2317 means. 
I have to do subtraction and I don't like subtraction. And so I would like to see a toggle switch on that. Um, probably get, one will get retro-engineered in at some stage now that I'm not under a massive deadline. <laughs> so uh, what I wanted to have um, is was, was related to uh, a, a specific thing that I used to have. I, um, there was a dashboard widget, and uh, yes, I used a dashboard widget. It was um, created by a gentleman named Terry Brett. It was called Time Scroller, and it was this lovely dashboard widget where you could, you could put in a bunch of time zones, you could change the time zones to people's names, and then you could drag a little slider and see what time it would be in their time zone if you slid it. Now, his thing has lots more bells and whistles. It has a little uh, red and green circle, so you, if it's red, that means you just asked them to be on in the middle of their night. So you can scroll it around. But I always really liked that concept of being able to scroll time. So I wanted to have uh, that that concept, but I didn't want to completely steal the name. So mine is called the Time Shifter Clock. It has a it has a uh, a slider, and I'll get into how I built that in a minute. Um, but I did put a tip of the hat to Terry on my on my page to tell him that's where my inspiration was from. So since I started with the existing clock, that meant I had I had classes, right? I had classes that I built with my own two hands. And then right before you gave the assignment, the last thing you did was taught us about getters and setters. Yes. And I have to tell you, I am really angry that you didn't have to do classes because I spent so much time writing all those stupid getters and setters to go with all of my stupid class instances. And it took me forever and I didn't see the point. I was just like, I'm just writing blah, 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 repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. This is a string. This is a Boolean. I hated it. I hated every minute of it. And Dorothy had to listen to it all. I was like, why am I having to do this? You're on the, tre you're on the treadmill or whatever in the gym. And yeah, well, actually, we, we can't anymore. Uh, so, but we, uh, uh, I, I text her when I'm angry, so she loves that. But anyway, I, I found you that you don't zoom, you don't zoom stairwalk or anything. <laughs> no, no, not, not working that way. So, uh, anyway, it was boring, arduous, and I could not see the point of it. However, after a while, as I started to add capabilities to my clocks, I was doing it in the classes and I got really good at saying, okay, I got to go do a getter and et cetera. I got to go do my, uh, my error checking. And it, one of the things I keep asking you is how do you think up what they're going to do wrong? That's really, really hard. And I got better and better. There are still some where I've got notes that go, yeah, I should probably think up what they're going to do wrong, but it's too hard. So I'm not going to, yeah, <laughs> I actually write that in my notes, but I started to understand what its value was. And I was able, uh, to get that to start you know, I, there wasn't as much sand in the gears each time I did one. And yeah. so it got easier and easier. And so building on that, I got to the point where I think I got the the understanding of why they're there. Um, I do yeah. want to give a, a, a tip of the hat to um, Visual Studio Code from Microsoft, which I think you've just started using. And I've been yeah, using for a while. I'm a total neophyte, right? I have gotten to the point where I realize it's an amazing tool. Mm -hmm. And I have so much to learn. It's going to take me a long time to get value from it, but it is definitely an amazing tool and that it's free and open source is kind of cool. It is. It's awesome. And uh, um, Geeko Supremo, uh, Caleb Fong turned me on to it and and he's helped me with it a little bit. And every once in a while I whine about something and he says, oh, did you know you can blah, blah, blah in, in Visual Studio Code? And I wanted to do a review of how much I love it, but I'm such a neophyte at programming that I don't understand 95% of what it can do, but it did something really interesting. I had written um, the documentation stuff. I don't know what it's called, where you do the slash star and then you write in, you know, squirrely bracket the string. Doc comments. Yeah, the doc comments. 
And then I had written my getter and my setter, and I, I noticed on the setter, on the name of my variable, there were two dots under the first couple characters. I thought, well, that's weird. It's not red squiggly line like it's a mistake. It's just dots. And so I, I, I tapped on it, and it said that um, my type could be any because you haven't explicitly said what it should be. Yeah. But no, but I had, Bart. I had said it had to be a Boolean. So why was it telling me it could? It wasn't getting anything? It didn't know what it was supposed to be. It's because I had a typo in the name in the getter. Or, I mean, uh, yeah, in the getter. So the setter wasn't seeing a getter because it just couldn't see it. So it was actually yes. sort of interpreting the documentation a little bit, I think. That's exactly what it's doing. Yeah, and a good, a good, a good JavaScript uh, IDE will read those doc comments and understand them. And then when you when it does your your you know helpful hover over help information, it can tell you this should be a string. This function returns a boolean, etc. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really cool about Visual Studio Code. But I also found some of my error checking. One of my core competencies is writing um, if statements backwards. So I'm saying I don't. Yeah. Meaning I don't want it to be A, B or C. And I have now guaranteed it will be A, B or C. I do. Ah, I get the nots backwards or the ors and the ands. I am just amazing at it. But because I wrote the the setter that said, you know, it's going to have to be like this, and I would do it, and it would say I was wrong. And it was like, no, I did it right. But my 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 um my code was wrong. But it was that error checking that that told me that it was wrong. Instead of yeah. just blurting, you know, this doesn't work down at the bottom. It was an actual useful error message because I had written it. That that is the power of getters and setters is that it turns silly typos into sane error messages for yourself. Yeah, yeah. So I hate to admit it, but I liked it. So we'll Yay! come back to we'll come back to classes at the end though cuz I'm still angry. And, that by you... the way, I have re- easily written 50 classes between the when I set this assignment and now they were just for somebody else. Oh, cuz I was in <laughs> chaos mode in work. Okay, okay 50 is probably an So you just you just want me to know you I've suffered? Written... <laughs> yeah, I have written many many getters and setters since last we spoke. Just okay. not in my sample solution. <laughs> All right. So I was talking about our the uh, giant dropdown of Doom that everybody, including me, hated. I mean, there wasn't any. Everybody said, "Okay, that technically works, but we're never going to use this." So yeah. um, you suggested using a uh, plugin written by someone named Hunaras, uh, and the the plugin is called Bootstrap for Autocomplete. And I, I put in the specifics on that because when Bart first told me, he said, oh, go get the Bootstrap 4 Autocomplete plugin. And it turns out there's a bunch of them with that name. And I was using this other one that was really poorly written. And I couldn't figure it out. Finally got the one Bart was talking about. And it still took me a while to figure it out, but I, I, got it to, I got it to run. And the purpose of the Bootstrap, what the Bootstrap 4 Autocomplete uh, plugin does is really interesting. You create an input text box and then... As you start to type a certain number of characters, which the the developer, de- you as the developer define, I chose three, for example, uh, three characters. Um, as soon as you type three characters, a dropdown is created from the uh, from the the um, data set that you give it, and so it creates that dropdown. You select the text, and then the dropdown is is uh, removed. So it's this yes. appearing and disappearing uh, dropdown. The reason I know that's why it does that is because I was watching it do it and I thought, how is a screen reader ever going to know it's there? There was something about it that made me think, I don't see, I'm, I'm not sure it's going to be able to see it. So I played around with voiceover mm-hmm. myself and sure enough, I never heard it say, 
you know, expand and uh, what normally you have aria has pop up equals true and aria uh, expand expanded equals true. It never says that because it, you yeah. didn't write the code. The developer did. And the developer of the plugin. So I had uh, Scott Howell, who's my favorite um, uh, beta tester for for accessibility. He looked at it. He goes, "Nope, there's nothing there. You're right. I can't. I can't hear it." And so uh, Helma and I've been working, mostly Helma to be honest, but uh, Helma and I've been working on trying to fix the plugin and give it back to Hunanas so that we can um, so that we can you know get it out to everybody. Yeah. yeah. It, so the thing that's really depressing about this whole thing is we went to this to the Aria spec, or I got the Aria spec from uh, from Scott, and it turns out there's three different ways to do it, and it has to do with a list box versus a combo box, and then I forget what the third one is. And sadly enough, only one of the three solutions on the Aria spec web pages is accessible. The other yeah, two are. I assume this is down to the browsers not implementing the full spec. So Aria is kind of like aspirational mm. and then your actual browsers implement the subset of the aspiration is what it, I think maybe that's what it smells of to me maybe yeah so anyway helm has got some ideas and we we haven't given up but when we get it fixed we'll we'll give it back to the developer but the thing i loved about this the code was she always says well just download the code and look at it and i'm like sure and i download this code on, on things and it's always like 4300 lines you know I, there's no way i mean i, I just close those right away because i'm never going to figure it out i open this thing it's 92 lines long and it's that's, that's what what yeah, you know that was it. Um, uh, what's the, the, the Mark? Isn't a Mark Twain quote? I'm sorry, I've written you such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. Yeah, yeah. Source yeah. code is like that. Good code is usually both clear and concise. It's very right. easy to be concise. You write ugly, ugly code, <laughs> and it's very easy to be clear by writing twenty million lines of code. But to be clear and concise, now you're talking. Yeah. Yeah, so Hunaris did a good job, and and I'm it's it's in active development, so I think they'll be really happy when we when we give it back to them. But I did discover something. If you're going to use this plugin before we get it fixed, there's there's something I'd suggest you change in it. Um, one of the you get you get access to a couple of uh, variables in here, or a couple of parameters, I guess is a better word. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of them is uh, whether to highlight the text that shows up in the dropdown. So if you type, you want to find Detroit. You type in mm -hmm. DET, the pop, the dropdown shows up, and and every search result it finds will have DET highlighted in it. So maybe maybe right. the characters are in the middle of the word, they're at the beginning or the end of the word, but it's showing you where it found the match. When it does that, it's splitting the word up. So what a screen reader hears, if this if the person ever successfully finds that dropdown, what they're going to hear is Detroit. <laughs> they don't hear Detroit anymore because it's two words. It's Detroit. So yeah. I would suggest turning that highlighting off. Uh, so it's highlight uh, highlight typed colon false. Put that into your in your little parameter list, and then because I mean it's it's cute, but it it doesn't provide that much value to the sighted user, and it's no. pretty catastrophic to the blind. I would argue it doesn't. In our case, anyway, it doesn't provide any value because you really don't care why it found your time zone. You just want your time zone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it might be a curiosity of like, oh, look, there's a place in Saudi Arabia that has a DET in it, you know, <laughs> but it's not like it helps you achieve your goal. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, no. So that's a little bit of homework for me then. So I need to tweak that parameter in mind because I think I, I'm 90. Yeah, well, yours is still you? highlighted. Yeah. Yeah. So let me switch gears and talk about building the URL. 
I didn't use a plugin for that. Um, well, maybe you'll. I did say it was possible, right? Do regular expressions? Yeah, but I, I have one, one teeny, teeny little regular expression, which made it into a nightmare. But um, <laughs> and and actually, I am using a class, but it's a built-in class called URL Search Params, and I put the link to the documentation, which I read, Bart, and uh, it was uh, developer.mozilla.org. Can't yeah, do better than that. It was super easy. I mean, if you combine that with uh, the built-in function, use something similar, window.location.search, that pulls out just the search query stuff for you. And so you can pull it out ah, and manipulate clever. it. So I didn't, it, it, on, the, on the hard to implement scale of all the different things I did, this was one of the easiest things. It was super easy. Um, what I got stuck on was exact the the URL manipulation you talked about. So um, it, I there's spaces between the letter words and names. Like if it says Los Space Angeles, you got to put yes. something in there. So I said, okay, well, I bet I could do a, a you know that's a pretty tough one, but I bet I could replace that with pluses, which would be interpreted correctly by the browser. No problem. I wrote it. It took me, you know, like three hours to write a, a regular expression that got rid of one character replaced with a plus. But hey, I did it. So I did that. But I ended up with the weirdest thing. My my solution has several clocks. And that's what Bart was talking about, how mine is maybe a little harder. So right now I have it showing with two clocks, but you can make as many clocks as you want. I... um. So I'm sending you times in a bunch of different cities. So it doesn't have your name, but it'll say Los Angeles or it'll say Dublin. And, it, and it's got these, these different names in there. And so I've got clock one and clock two, let's say. And in between mm -hmm. clock one and clock two in the URL, it put about 20 pluses. And I could not huh. figure out why it was doing that for the longest time. So I, I, I wrote to Bart and I said, uh, I said, you know, I used a, a, a regular expression to fix this. And I was really proud of myself. But look at the mess I have. And Bart told me this great joke. He said, when you solve a problem with a regular expression, now you have two problems. <laughs> that, that is the old. There are regular expression lovers and haters. And the regular expression hater will always tell you, if you have a problem and you think regular expressions are the answer, you now have two problems. <laughs> So I did have two problems. I don't even remember how I fixed it. I think I got Alistair to fix it for me. I, I don't even remember that one, but I was kind of pleased with figuring out that URL search params. And to be honest, I tried the plugin you talked about and I could never figure out how to get it to do anything. I found it huh. mysterious. So I'm looking forward to looking at your code to see how you even used it because I couldn't get it to do anything. Well, the code is so short, it's actually entirely in the show notes. Oh, okay. So you wanted to go looking very far because um, I have the code in there for processing the URL and it really is just a case of saying new URI.query uh, hmm. and when you pass it the parameter true, it just gives you back a dictionary. So literally I get a dictionary of everything that was in the URL. But how, and you, I can construct, how are you creating it? I create a new dictionary and I pass that into .query and then it's a setter. Okay. Well, I'll have to take so a, a bit, look at that. Yeah. Yeah. It's... I'm looking forward to it, but it was it was pretty fun. I I found that process, like I said, that piece was uh, I would step and step and step, and there was no falling backwards, hardly at all. You know, most most of the things I work on, it'll be like three days to try to get the padding to come off of something on the left hand side. You know, that'll that'll be really frustrating. But I thought that part was really fun. Um, Excellent. When I so. Part of the, uh, the way my clock works is you uh, you type you type in a couple of cities 
and then you drag this time shifter, uh, and uh, when you slide it, it's going to tell you how many hours you've slid it by, and you see all of the clocks changing their times, and then uh, I have a copy button. And when I first did it, the hitting the copy button popped up an alert, and it said, copy this URL to send to somebody. And then it had the text of the URL out in front of you. And the text of my URL, because of the way I did it, is really long. I mean, it goes on for lines and lines and lines, and there's all kinds of variables in there. It's not, you know, the way you did it with the uh, the um, UTC time thing, that is much simpler. Yeah, the Unix timestamp is like the most efficient character-wise way of specifying a time I could think of. Yeah, yeah. Dorothy did it that way, too, and she kept laughing at my my queries. But anyway, um, so, uh, so my, my query string is you know eight lines long something like that if you you know scroll it a little bit and so showing it to them was lame because they shouldn't have to worry their pretty little heads about it and putting it in an alert meant you had to copy part of the alert because part of this alert was my text saying hey copy this and blah 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 with it and the third problem with it was it doesn't work in chrome at all because chrome doesn't let you select from an alert so I was like, okay, so that's got to go. And I'm really, really happy with my second solution. So I'm really glad that that failed. I created a, a, a button and I attached a click handler to that. And the click handler creates the URL string first. Then it creates a dummy text input element that contains the URL string. It gives the, uh, the text input an ID of dummy text. And then I used a built-in command, and I don't know whether this is a, what you call this, what kind of command it is, but it's document.exect command, quote, copy. Mm -hmm. It just copies whatever has been selected automatically. I, and it I puts, just looked it up on Mozilla Developer Network. Mm -hmm. Is it deprecated? Yeah. <laughs> a giant, giant red warning, obsolete. This feature is obsolete. Although it may still work in some browsers, its use is discouraged since it could be removed at any time. Interesting. Try to avoid using it. So, you know, whenever I see things start with document dot, that's why as soon as you said, I just looked it up and you got that look on your face, I was wondering about that. Um, I'll be curious if there's something else that replaces it, but that allowed me to copy it into the clipboard. Uh, but then mm -hmm. it leaves, then it has this weird text box sitting around with the selected text. And that's ugly. Why should they have right. to look at that? So I didn't want them to worry their pretty little heads about that. So I used the built-in uh, jQuery function, uh, input.remove, and then the class of the, of the, uh, of the uh, text box. So I create the text box, I plop in the URL, I copy it, and then I remove the text box. And I'm not quite sure why this works, but the user never sees it. Well, if you never, so remember, if you use jQuery to create something, it's in limbo until you append it. To oh, something. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Okay. So you never actually injected it into the DOM. So it was sitting in this parallel universe where it exists, but it hasn't been connected to the visible reality yet. But before I found that input.remove function, before I found that, it was visible on my page. But then, okay, so, oh, hang on, you have an append too. Sorry, I'm just looking at your code. You do have an append in there. Append to dollar dummy. Yeah, so I have a I have a div that I append it to, and then I get rid of it. Okay, so that is injecting it into the DOM by yeah. appending it. You're you are you, so you are injecting it into the DOM, and then the dot remove command is removing it from the DOM. Right. 
And what is probably happening there is that it's happening so quickly that you never see it because yeah. to a computer, those two commands, like there's no animation between those. There's no... Like, beep out. Like that's, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's a tick. And the Safari is particularly efficient at things and it probably will never even bother its backside to try render something that's gone so quick. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's it's lovely. So you hit copy URL to send times, and I've got an alert that says, hey, I just copied this for you. Send it to somebody. Cool. So I got to go figure out if that copy thing can be uh, replaced. <laughs> yeah, I need to do the same, because at the moment, I've sort of gone for the poor man solution. I stick it in a text box, which is truncated, and I don't care. And then I select it. And then I sort of leave it to you to go command C. Yeah, it's a little ugly, Bart. It is. What I was thinking of doing is a little popover to say, you know, detect whether you're on a Mac or a PC and say, press control C, press command Q. Because yeah. that's how Doodle does it. Yeah. And I figure if Doodle aren't automatically copying it, there must be a reason. And the last time I looked this up, which I, which was a year or two ago, I remember discovering that the only very well supported way of doing it was Flash. Oof. And I made a mental note that I am never, never <laughs> using that. No, ever. no. So I wonder, is there is can you think of a security reason why that might not be something yeah. they let us do? Yes, because allowing JavaScript now the copying to the clipboard isn't as dangerous, but it's the same API usually as reading from the clipboard. And if you have a web page that can read your clipboard every millisecond and you use something like one password, you have a massive problem. So you think it might not even be possible? I think it's been intentionally removed. Hmm. But again, the last time I looked at this, that was the case, but it's at least a year ago. So I need to do a little more homework. And I am sort of suspicious of the fact that big websites are starting to basically select it for you and then tell you to copy yourself. Okay. Well, I'll be all sad because I like it. So I'm looking at uh, the MDM web docs for uh, the document.exec command, copy, cut, and paste. And I don't see anything on this page talking about it being deprecated. For me, it's at the very, very top of the page. Uh, yeah. Yes. So it's the subject is interact with the clipboard. So it's Mozilla add-ons, browser extensions. Yeah, so, so this here's is telling browser I'm extension at, how to mess with which it. Which is the documentation for exec dot, document that exec command. And it's the very, very top. That looks exactly like where I am. Huh. And you don't have curious. the giant big red. Let me chat you mine back. Well, interesting. Well, we'll we'll uh, figure this out. Yeah. So mine is interact with the clipboard. So maybe. So this is for browser extensions. Yeah. But you're not a browser extension. No, I'm not. But if they can. You know, no, no, a browser extension explicitly has more rights than you do. That's uh, what makes them an extension, right? An extension uh, can do things a web page can't. A web page can't do what one password does, but one password can do what one password does. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm gonna be all sorry and sad, but mine works right now, so shut up. <laughs> yes, I, I was I was in two minds whether or not to share my discovery with you. Well, it would be it would be bad for the audience if you hadn't, so we will allow it. Fair point. Um so when I got done with the um with making my awesome button that you've now ruined, uh <laughs> I, I needed to start polishing the design. Like I said, I talked to the uh, to the Slack community and I got a bunch of really good feedback. And one of the, so I had, I had a couple of goals in 
you know, polishing this up. One was to create an interface that fit on a single screen on mobile and yet still had explanations of what the tool was supposed to do. And it's that second part that makes the first part really tricky because the whole yeah. concept of time shifting, like when I explained it to people, people go, well, I can find out the time in another time zone. It's everywhere. Go, yeah, but you can't find out what time it will be. And they go, what? And so it's not a natural thing that people think about. So you yeah, find yourself doing- Especially when you wrap a day, right? Oh, yeah. It's all good and well if it's like noon for you and it's 4 p.m. for someone else. Well, yeah, I'm going to get into that. 11 p.m. for you. Wait, I'm going to get into that because I, 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 I definitely had that in my notes to talk about that piece of it. But don't get ahead of me there. Um, okay. So my my first attempt to try to explain things was I had a whole bunch of text up in the header and it's like, ah. You go to a, a site, you're not going to read it, and it's annoying, right? So I didn't want to do that. So then I thought, okay, well, let me take that stuff out, and I'll put a little cute little font awesome information icon, the little I, and that way when people hover over it, they'll get more information. So if they don't know what it is, they know they can find out. Okay, that's going to work. And that was pretty good on desktop, but it was disastrous on a mobile phone for some yeah. reason, and I would really like an explanation of this. If you hold an iPhone in portrait mode... And in my case, and I tapped on the uh, portrait, you know, up and down way, um, yeah. and you and you tap on the the eye, it would come up and then instantaneously disappear. It would go, blink, come on and off, and you couldn't huh. get it to stay on. So Marianne in the chat room suggested that I do a click instead of a hover because there is no real hover on the iPhones. Okay, great. So I did a, I did a click and that worked great. It popped up, it covered up a bunch of the page, but that's fine. You get, you click the icon again to make it go away. But the phone is so small that the, the text box was over the icon. So you could never make it go away. Oh, so, yeah, phone but, screens but, are challenging. But here's a weird thing, Bart. If you put the same phone in uh, uh, horizontally, you know, you put it in landscape yeah. mode, the hover did work. You could tap it and it would show up and tap it and it would go away. So there's something about the, the width being constricted that made it not functional. Yeah, I, I know. I, I don't have the details to hand. I should really have the docs open. But in, in Bootstrap with those tooltips, you can actually you have a you can pass it options for how it should behave. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what its default is, because one of the options is toggle. where basically click on, click off. I think. Well, I think there was so, hover. There was hover and click, I think. And I think this dismissible is another option. So basically it means if you, you click an anywhere on the screen, that's not the pop over. Oh. It goes away. That might have worked. But what I came out with was so much better. And yes, um, you gave me credit for finding this, but I could have sworn you taught us about it. But then again, I looked for the lesson and I couldn't find it. So <laughs> I can't prove it. But I thought you taught us about Bootstrap Collapse. We mentioned it because Bootstrap Collapse is what powers those tabs. So if you have a tab pane mm -hmm. in Bootstrap, which we did talk about, the, the way that actually works under the hood is it is one of the things you can do with Collapse. Because in effect, you're collapsing the tabs you can't see. Okay. And I do have collapses in my, what I've started doing in all of my, um, the top nav, I put in a nav bar yes. with helpful resources. And that's actually just for me. So like I have on this assignment, there's a link to the a, a tab for the moment.js home, moment.js docs, moment time zone docs, and uri.js, which I never successfully used. Um, but I've got a, a collapse when the um, when the size of the window gets so small that it's like on a phone. You get the the, yeah. the hamburger menu. 
That is, you're right. That's the other place we've seen collapse. So J- jQuery use not jQuery. Bootstrap uses the collapse plugin, as they call it, for lots of features. Okay. Okay. And we've seen it for those two, but we haven't talked about it in this generic sense like you used it here. Okay. Okay. That's why. So um, I put a giant button in. So I've got a, a a header area that says time shifter clock. It says your local time. That clock is showing seconds so that you can tell it's live. That's the only reason for that. And that's because the way I wrote my original uh, clocks, I can't make the colons pulse. <laughs> so I, I put in show seconds. Them the seconds. Yeah, okay. show them the seconds. They know it's there. And then, so I put a giant button underneath that that says push to learn how this works. So if you already know how it works, it's not in your way. When you push it, it glides down. It just goes, it glides down and it shows you the instructions and then you tap it again and it glides away. And it, it just makes me so happy. When I found that, I was just like, this is, this is elegant. You know, it really, really felt good. That's one of the joys of Bootstrap, actually, is that, I mean, you could code that up yourself from first principles because Bootstrap can't do magic. Mm-hmm. But goodness me, is it much easier to throw a few data attributes around the place and have it just happen. (laughs) Steve made fun of me because I just keep pushing it and watching it go up and down. I did fiddle around a bunch to get it to work well on the phone uh, because at first it was too narrow and it was, you know, it was just like half width on a phone. And that was really stupid because then it was really long and things like that. But I mucked around with it until it slides down, pretty much takes up the whole width. And then I did another one uh, when you drag to shift the hours. Um, one of the decisions I had to make was where to start time. So right now it's 3.56 p.m. <laughs> that sounds so meta. Where does time begin? <laughs> well, everybody knows it was in 1969, right? <laughs> <laughs> we are used. So um, anyway, so I had to decide where to start time. And so like right now, my clock says 3.56 uh, p.m. When you start to slide the slider, the first thing it does is it rounds down to the nearest hour. So it's actually going backwards in time to 3 p.m. Yeah. Okay. All right. So as soon as you, if if I go to a half hour forwards, it goes to 3.30. So it's a little bit weird that it's behind in time. When you receive the clock, I reset that slider to zero. And that might seem weird. Everybody I've showed it to says, well, it should start showing how many hours you shifted it by because you shifted it by five hours. It should show that. But we don't know what time you're going to receive it. So that five hours has no meaning. Correct. Yeah, no, you're right. I entirely see it your way. Yeah, but I do have to explain that to people. So maybe, you know, that's a little bit weird. So one of the things I did another bootstrap collapse There's a little question mark help next to drag to shift time. And it says, as you start to slide, clocks will round down to nearest hour and shift forward from there. So I used it twice and it just it just made me really happy. I love both of those. Yeah, they're they're pretty. So, um, one of the things that took me a little bit of time to to wheedle about is, uh, as with everything bootstrap, there are events you can you can uh attach event handlers to so you notice in my collapse when it's uncollapsed whatever whatever the word is for hidden compressed mm-hmm. i don't know what is the opposite of co- i suppose it is collapsed and then it uncollapses when i click on it um it says save as default dot 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 and when you click on it to expand the collapse it says hide save controls yeah i i saw that i don't think i would use that word hide Which save word? i read that going hide save what do you mean hide save am i saving or am i hiding well the save as defaults is what you're expanding so i figured hide what you just expanded i might reword that yeah it's just it's just the save as defaults makes sense but then it's hide save what it, it it makes perfect sense when you know what it is but if you're trying to figure out what it is it it just confused me a little bit but yeah that it's yeah. beautiful how that slides up and down 
that's it's fun to watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's just fun. But as I say, there there's an event handler you can listen to for hide and show, which is how I'm changing the text. An event handler to listen for. So what do you mean? So the the collapse has an event handler on it that when it is shown, it changes the text to hide. And when it is hidden, it changes the text. Oh, oh, oh I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, so the button itself is listening for whether the, the text is showing. No, or... the expandy no? shrinking thing is listening and it changes the button. The collapsing, the collapsing, the bootstrap collapse is actually changing the button? Yes. So the bootstrap collapse has an event that is fired when it expands or, or collapses. Oh. So I attach the listener to it that says, when I'm expand oh. when I'm expanded, change the label on the button. And when I'm collapsed again, change the label back. Boy, you probably read the manual on that one. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> For uh, This is very rare. We're, we're actually watching each other on video right now. And Bart just had a big grin on his face when he said that. <laughs> I'm a big believer in the manual. Yeah, I'm getting, I have almost got you convinced, but... Well, I'm getting better at it. I only get mad when I think you think I didn't try to read the manual because I always try to read the manual first. It's whether I succeeded understanding the manual. That's a whole nother conversation. So that is one of the key skills, right, that I'm hoping has gotten drilled in over this whole series. Initially, reading the manual is impossible. Like it's English. And yet it's not. Yeah, but. Now that you've spent, you know, many thousands of hours in developer land, mm-hmm. I'm hoping more and more of more, more and more of more and more manuals is making more and more sense. I would put it this way. I don't dread it as much as I used to. I don't necessarily understand <laughs> you know, it more. But before I'd go, oh, it's NBN. There's that link. Oh, I don't want to read it. Don't make me. And now I just go, OK, well, I might get it this time because because it has happened that I have understood a couple of times. Well, it's happened quite a bit, actually, because it's the last couple of inst- assignments you've come to me with a solution that I never mentioned. Yeah, okay. So unless you got it by osmosis, you must have got it from the manual. <laughs> I think it's immersion, right? <laughs> I've been I've been having to swim on my own an awful lot. But I, I wanted yeah. to talk about a couple of observations and ask you philosophical questions. You asked, asked if yeah. I had any questions, and you sort of walked right into it is – the amount of overhead I have for two clocks and having classes and all of those those getters and setters and instance variables, it's a, it's heavy. That's a lot of weight on top of two little clocks. Now, technically, I thought I could build a button that says I would like to show a third clock and then people could have three times they could send. Um, so building it up front wasn't wasted effort, but... How do you decide, like, you've got two clocks showing on your screen. You're you're having to build those separately. You build them twice. You've got to have a, a bad I, smell okay, there, I no? Don't, I build them twice, but actually have a function called build clock. Sure. But because it doesn't But you do, have to build it twice with two different sets of parameters, right? Right, but they happen to be, um, basically what I've done is I implemented them as mustaches. So there's a mustache that just takes two parameters, the time zone and the time, and it Okay. The clock. So it was sort of a case that it's so simplistic because I don't have a toggle for 24 hours versus not 24 hours. I don't have the ability to have pulsing or non-pulsing. It's just display this time. It's not really a clock at all, right? It's just some text that says a time and never changes. So it doesn't have a timeout to make it change over time. Oh, okay. So it's so simplistic that you're right. It just... It was nothing to achieve there. So I've got but, 
I give mine, uh, since I've got two clocks, I start them somewhere. I assume Los mm-hmm. Angeles and Dublin, as one does, are my two. No, I think so, they're perfectly sensible. Yeah. Absolutely. So it says time in America, Los Angeles becomes and time in uh, Europe, Dublin becomes. So you can play with the slider and the toggles right off, right out of the, the gate. And then you can change those cities. So I have to, I have parameters for what city do you want it to start in? What color do you want the border to be? You know, do you want it to start? You can have, uh, mine has got uh, hours and minutes and seconds. Um, oh, and I forgot to talk about it because you started talking about it earlier is, I decided partway through, actually because of something I couldn't figure out how to fix, I decided to actually show the hours, uh, the the date. And that's really important when you're talking to Alistair, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're doing a time slider and you say, okay, I'll meet you at 1130 in the morning. And he says, okay. And you show up on two different days because he's yeah, on the other yeah. side of the international date line. So, uh, I mean, and, I always joke when Alistair's on Let's Talk, how is it tomorrow? Because yeah. he's always in the next day. Always Ex- the next day for Alistair. Exactly. And uh, Michael Westbay and Kaylee are both in Japan. And so, you know, I'm running, I run into it a lot, surprisingly. And so having that in in my display did turn out to be important. But I guess the question I want to, how do you, how do you decide when you should build classes and instances, getters and setters and all that nonsense and, and when it's not worth it? Do you start and then go, oh, I'm doing too, I'm smelling bad here. I should change it to a class. Yes. And So that is definitely true, right? If I'm writing code and it gets a bad smell, that will cause me to stop, reevaluate, and probably turn it into a class. But with 10,000 hours under my belt, I don't usually get as far as the bad smell. Okay, you can smell it coming. I can smell it coming, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. But yeah, that is kind of the thing. When you find yourself, don't be afraid to go, oh, this is a lot of work. Maybe I should rethink this. You mean if I'm doing classes and... If you're not doing... Well, both ways. Frankly, both ways. So yeah. if you, you're you going to make a guess, right? Because, well, you're going to make a decision. Right? right. Do I do X or do I do Y? And you may guess based on your intuition, I think this is worthy of a class. And you get 20 minutes into it and you're going, no, I'm wasting my time here. Don't be afraid to stop. Okay. Right? It's, it is a tool that is really important to have in your toolbox. But there is no rule that says thou shalt always write classes. It's, okay. it's just a tool. Okay. I think two is too small <laughs> or too few. Right. But see, in, in my Three mind... Three might not be. Yeah. But in my mind, version two of your interface will just have a button saying add clock. And so I could have... So yeah. some people might care about three time zones and some people might care about five. Yeah. And so if you have a plus button, then your class is now effectively representing the abstract concept between one and infinity times. And that's well worth the class. Yeah, yeah. I, I still think there's value to it. I need to go back through and figure out. It, it, I do find a lot of times I go back and I look and I go, what does that parameter do? I didn't. I never used that one. I know I have a getter. Well, that's where you comment them. <laughs> well, yeah, but I was going to use them. But okay, I just never used to them. delete your own code, right? Your yeah. code is not precious. If, if it you've is, written some code and you don't use it, delete it. It's comical how many times I go, I don't think I use that. Let me delete it and see what goes wrong. Nope, nothing changed. <laughs> Actually, one of the nice things about my current editor, Komodo Edit, is that it highlights functions you never use in yellow. Oh, um, uh, Visual Studio Code does that too. 
Good. Uh, it actually grays them out. So I could see when I was building up functions, I could see, okay, I've declared it, but when, okay, now I, now that I've written it, did it turn, did it high, you know, did it become bold, you know, you know non-grayed out? Yeah, it works fine. So um, yeah. that was my first question. My second question was, I seem to find certain functions that really felt like they should be instance functions, but for the life of me, I could not get them to work inside the class definition. And when I was working with Dorothy, Dorothy said, ah, just take it out of the class. And I, I, I felt like, I felt like a failure for not being able to get it to work in the instance function, but it seems that there is some dividing line that won't work. So for example, creating the, um, the little search box with that plugin, um, I, I absolutely had to do it outside of the class and I've got the code in the show notes. I don't know whether it's going to uh, be super helpful, but basically it's calling the parameters of that plugin. And I couldn't figure out how to do that inside the instance. Well, okay. So if you need to access something that isn't available to you at the point in time when the class has been created or the instance has been created, you're going to have to pass it as a parameter. So if something you need doesn't exist at the point in time the instance is made, then it has to be a parameter so okay. that you pass it when you call the function instead of when you create the object. Okay. So, so you think that those likely... Really matters. Okay. Do you think, does it make sense that, that creating that search box on those divs was something that had to be outside of the class? Does that make any sense? Well, see, I don't think, think it about? has to be outside the class. What I'm saying is it may be that you have to pass an argument at some point to say, basically, if the thing you need doesn't exist at the point in time you call the constructor, mm -hmm. then it has to be passed as an argument. When and, you if that call argument the and if the argument doesn't exist yet. No, no, but at the point in time when you call the function, it must exist or the function couldn't do its thing. Mm -hmm. So instead of it being a property of the class, it may be an argument to the function. Hmm. So the question is, at the point in time when you call the constructor, does the thing you need exist yet? And if the answer is no, then it can't be a property because it doesn't exist. So how can you save it inside the class? Okay. So either the function doesn't belong in the class at all, which if it's related to the concept, it probably does belong in the class, but maybe it's a static function. Hmm. And it definitely has to take that value as an argument because how else can it possibly get it? Hmm. I understand all the words is, you're saying. I don't know how to apply it to what I did. So maybe sometime we could play it, and it, look at it. Basically, it's, it's all about timing, right? So if the thing doesn't exist at the point in time you wish it existed, right. you're going to have to turn it into an argument. Right. Well, it has to exist at the point the function runs. question is, does it exist at the point in time you said new? And there may be a long time between saying new <laughs> and running the function. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to go back and look at that. I, I may make you look at my code with me at some point. It is terrifying to me, by the way, that'll be my third observation, is the fact that my code is up on GitHub and I have published it and I've put it in the show notes and you can go look at it. And I could end up severely embarrassed on <laughs> you guys looking at my code. <laughs> uh, something I need to get over, I think. Uh, one of the joys of being in the community is... You get the advantages of stuff being open source. And it turns out everyone writes bad code. <laughs> it's fine. So what, what matters is learning from whoopsies. Not that you never make any. 
I don't. I don't find. Any I, value I just mean in ugly and disorganized and stuff. I mean, I got a lot of comments in there that are helpful, but there's, you know, I look at well, it now and I'm like, that. Why is it even in that order? I mean, I could reorder this and it might make sense to somebody else as as an API, right? Well, that is actually that is one of the advantages of open sourcing stuff is it encourages you to do the right thing, not only mm. for future you, but also out of lack of embarrassment. Now, <laughs> yeah. Basically, you have, you know, the curtains are open, so maybe you should hoover the sitting room. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one of my new favorite uh, or favorite podcasts is called Code Newbie uh, with Saranyat Barak. And we've talked a lot on other shows about um, the Red Hat show that she does. Command Line Heroes. Command Line Heroes, right? And she does this one where she interviews people who are uh, real programmers, real developers, but then what was their learning journey? How, what was it like when they started? What was their first project? What bad advice did they get? What good advice did they get? And every single person says they feel like a pretender. Every one of them says, you know, oh, yeah. well, you know, I'm not really a developer, you know, and there are people who have been doing it for 30 years, you know, it's like, well, I just dabble in code. And I remember the first time Klaus Wolf said that I was like, are you kidding me? You just look what you just did. How can you not call yourself a developer? Oh, I just dabble. I'm not really a developer. And so it was uh, it, it, part of what they were talking about. They talk a lot about open source and putting things up on GitHub. And um, there was this uh, woman whose name keeps escaping me, but she, um, I'm going to look it up because she was so awesome. She said that that trying to give something to open source is succeeding. And uh, Ooh, her name is Janessa like Tran. She was on uh, season thirteen. Wait, that's thirteen, episode two. Season thirteen, episode. Oh, man, there's a lot more episodes and seasons than I thought. Um, but she, uh, when she said that, that really resonated with me. Trying is succeeding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and uh, coding is is one of those skills that there is no end to. There is no final boss. There is no <laughs> point in time when you have succeeded right yeah like photography like any craft there is always more to learn and so anyone who says to you oh yeah i know it all what that <laughs> guarantees is that they are wrong <laughs> and you probably should stop listening to them because they have fossilized the old way of doing things from the 70s 80s or 90s most probably i just Whereas should... someone who says oh i learn something new every week listen to them Whether they're nine or 99, listen to them. My mother's biggest compliment in after my father passed away is she always described him as someone who always wanted to learn, needed to learn more. And and I I think about I want to be that guy, you know, I think you are, which is, I think, why you and I get on so well, because I know (laughs) I'm that person. I I don't believe there is ever an end to knowledge there is always more to learn and i always want to hoover it up <laughs> and i get very cranky with people who say well i don't want to learn the new language i mean it was better in my day when we were using modular too no it wasn't <laughs> well i find those people fascinating and, I, and i've run into them in my life with uh, i used to run a big computer-aided design organization we changed from this one major tool to this other major tool and it was there was this whole group of people who just said i'm not going to and basically, they were eventually told, yeah, you know, if you don't know how don't to do this here. by January 1st, you don't work here anymore. They had to be that blunt with these people because they banded together and didn't want to learn. And I was fascinated by thinking that, why do you think because you're the best at this, you can't be best at the new thing? 
I want to jump on the new thing right away because that's the only way you're going to get to the front of the line is if you start learning faster than everybody else. And you should have a massive advantage because you know the old way. So the chances are, if you start in line with a fresh college graduate, you're going to get to the finish line first because you have all this life experience behind you. So the new thing should be easier for you. Even it's not if a case it's not as good in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre thing. I don't think you can be in computers and have the mindset of I don't like change. <laughs> <laughs> you can't. But you, you can't be, be but you'll cranky. be miserable. Right? Yeah, absolutely. You'll be a miserable sod 99.9% of the time because they, computers change. That's what they do. Right. Well, we're enjoying ourselves too much. You got, you've got some final thoughts to wrap up here? I do. So I wanted to sort of put us in context, right? So we've had cake. It's episode 100. Um, so this really, my intention here was to sort of to put a bow on our client-side development by setting a challenge that I would hope would subtly deliver three messages. So I'm hoping, and I, I think I succeeded here, in driving home the point that the hardest part of writing an app is figuring out how the human being is going to interact with it. Mm -hmm. That squishy organic bit is the cause of all of our trouble. <laughs> and, well, not all, but much of our trouble. So thinking about how humans think is probably one of the most important skills in being a good coder. Hmm. And it doesn't immediately come to people's minds, but that's what you're doing. You're trying to solve human problems with computers. And you're the translation layer between the two. You gotta make those two things meet. And that's a lot of work. Like creating a UI that people can just look at and understand, that's a skill. And humans have A, they're unpredictable, <laughs> and B, they're impatient. Mm -hmm. And that makes it really hard to design an interface that they will, in fact, the way I put it in the show notes was they will grok before they get bored or frustrated. <laughs> right. That is what you're hoping to achieve. Nab them before they sod off. Really hard to do. <laughs> um, the other thing is that by now, your coding toolbox has lots and lots and lots and lots of things in it. And so one of the skills is recognizing when to reach for the hammer versus when to reach for the screwdriver and not to feel that you should always use a hammer, right? Mm. Sometimes it makes perfect sense to write your own classes. Sometimes it makes perfect sense to just borrow someone else's or use someone else's. Sometimes it makes sense to use a case statement. Sometimes it makes sense to use cascading if else's. Sometimes it makes sense to iterate one way. Sometimes it makes sense to iterate another way. You have all of these tools. None is better than the other. None is, you know, oh, thou shalt always use, thou shalt never use. No, just use the right tool for the job. And one of the skills is remembering all the tools you have and choosing wisely. <laughs> It's that memory part that trips me up. <laughs> I think experience is probably a better word, to be honest, because it becomes yeah. instinctive rather than learned. Yeah. But again, the only way to get there is your 10,000 hours. There is no shortcut. Okay. It's a craft. Luckily, it takes me a really long time to do simple things. So my hours are stacking up really fast. <laughs> but that's normal. It's normal. I don't know. I um, still never believe it when it's happening, but okay. And the other thing is, don't be afraid to read the manual. In fact, it's not just okay, it's what you have to do, right? Mm. I have used moment.js for years. I have used URI.js for years. I had the docs open to both of those. Oh, because wow. when you come to use a function, 
you actually need to be sure it does what you think it does. So in the so moment provides a perfect example. If you say moment dot tz and you call the function on tz, what you are doing is making a new moment in that time zone. If you say moment open parens close parens dot tz open parens time zone, you are converting the existing mm -hmm. time to the other time zone. And that was subtle. That's not in your face that those are two dramatically different things. Different things, precisely. Now, my brain knew that moment.js could do both. And I knew the docs would tell me which was which. But I had I checked the docs rather than writing the code, testing it, going, oops, that's broken. Let's guess again. No, let's not guess again. Let's read the docs. <laughs> no, I right? just keep typing it different ways. No, I, I just I just go go to the source. And the same is true with URI.js. I adore that library. I use it all the time. And yet I will regularly go back to the docs just to double check. What does this argument mean? What's the return value? Okay, grand, that's what I want. Dum 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 done. I find that a hundred times quicker to quickly check the manual than to just guess. So I'm saying, don't be afraid to check the manual. It's not a sign of weakness. I know people who say, oh no, I'm a great coder. I never have to read the manual. Note to self, you're never working on my projects. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we are now at, a, at an important point in our journey as coders. So on the client, everything we've written so far, it's executed by the browser, right? The HTML comes as plain text from the web server, and the browser interprets it and displays it to us. The CSS... The browser receives plain text and it interprets it and it presents it. And the JavaScript arrives to the browser and then the browser runs it. So the code, everything we've done has been running in the browser. As far as we're concerned, up to this point, a web server is just a file server. All it does is it holds .html, .js, and .css files and hands them to us unaltered. And it is true that that is a thing a web server can do. but that's not really what web servers are usually doing. Web servers are usually doing a whole bunch of calculations on our behalf and returning the answer of those calculations to the browser. And we have completely ignored the abilities of a web server. And so we're now about to take, sort of go through the looking glass and look at our problems from exactly the opposite side, from the server side instead of the client side. Now, the client side is really weird. Everything else I can think of in computing, you have a choice of language. I would like to write an app for the Mac. Do I use Swift? Do I use Objective-C? Do I use C++? Do I use Python? Do I use Perl? You have lots of choices. Pick anything else in computing, you have lots of choices. Website, client-side programming on the web, there are exactly three languages you can use, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. You don't have a choice. There is no alternative to JavaScript. There is no alternative to HTML. There is no alternative to CSS. The closest you get is choosing between backwards compatibility with HTML4 or shiny and new with HTML5 hmm. or backwards compatibility with CSS2, shiny new with CSS3. But there's no choice of language. What you do also get is a choice of platform, right? So we can sort of say, let's use jQuery on top of JavaScript. But when we pivot to the server, we can pick 
almost any language on planet Earth. Would you like to write in Java? Would you like to write in JavaScript? Would you like to write in C? Would you like to write in C Sharp, ASP.net? It's like a million and one languages. Or what we're going to do is PHP. But you get to choose a language and then you still get to choose a platform. So if you choose PHP, do you build on WordPress? Do you build on Drupal? Do you build on, I mean, you still have the jQuery equivalent. So we've come from this world where there's only one choice of language to this new world where there's lots of choices of language. And as a community, I put the question out, what do we want to do? And the universal answer was PHP. So that's where we're going. And I really like it because the whole point of this series is to teach programming, not to teach JavaScript. So the fact that we're going to PHP instead of server-side JavaScript is great because what, I, what oh, I'm hoping okay. will become very obvious is that the concepts are the same. The syntax is a little bit different, you know, but you will have conditionals, you will have loops, variables will exist, variables will have types, variables will have scope, the rules will be different, there will be functions, there will be classes, but the syntax will be a bit different. And so your toolbox will basically have the same parts, but instead of a red Stanley knife, there might be a blue Stanley knife. <laughs> Right. But you, you will recognize the pieces and that will be a very interesting experience. But before we do that, we're taking a brief detour into the practicalities of programming, because one of the things I'm hoping you've realized at this stage is that when your coding projects get big, you need some tools to manage your code. I'm hoping you now have a pain point that I can solve for you with a source control system. Well, uh. Oh, that is probably true for some people listening, but uh, behind your back, Helma has been teaching me to use Git, uh, GitHub um, er, and to use a, a, Git, a Git tool. What I don't know is how to do any of it by the command line. Yeah, so we're going to basically start at the basics um, and backfill from there. So Git is a protocol for versioning stuff, and then an implementation of Git that is free to use is GitHub, and it's amazing. And there are lots of open source Git clients that could point to any Git server, including GitHub. Right. But under the hood, there are actually the raw Git commands. And so we're going to start with the raw Git commands Good. and then GitHub as an example of how to use Git and then some nice clients as an example of why, I mean, the buttons will match the command line perfectly. But the buttons are a lot easier to push. <laughs> but the but, buttons make a lot more sense when you know what's happening under the hood. I would really like, I'm glad you're going to do it that way, because I've been, a lot of times when I go to look for how to do something, what they give me is they start with the, the uh, command line. And yeah. I sit there going, well, don't know anything about that. Guess I can't, uh, guess I can't play. So well, the good news is once you know the command line, you'll recognize all the same keywords in the buttons and they'll make perfect sense. Okay. Because the GUI is just a skin over the command line because under the hood, it's all the Git command line. It, Git can only yeah. do what Git can do, right? It can fast forward, it can merge, it can branch, it can tag, but it only has a certain set of things it can do. And so the buttons in every Git client map to the things Git can do because that's all Git can do. And it has a meaning. <laughs> so they're Englishy words, but they're not really there as English. They're there as Git, right? The word merge has a meaning in English, but it has a really specific meaning in Git. 
I'm I'm glad so, about that. Um, I I know we're all itching to get to PHP, but I I've been holding a whole bunch of questions about how to do certain things. It, it does sound like it's it's a big topic, and you're going to probably have to figure out where enough information is, but not spend because I think you probably spend three months on Git, from what I've been uh, trying to learn. Yeah, and the way I'm sort of thinking of it is, it's important to lay out the philosophy of Git, because when the philosophy clicks in, the rest makes way more sense. Mm -hmm. And Git is not, Git is, it's it's anarchist in its mindset. Uh, It's not client server, it is entirely distributed. It's very, very left-wingy if it had a politics. Which is no surprise because it was invented for the purpose of versioning the Linux kernel. Oh, okay. That's its origin. So it is. There is no. There is no. Ma- there is no master and slave. Everyone is a peer. Everyone is equal. No one is more equal than someone else. And that's so so different to what people are used to thinking of, mm-hmm. where you check out something from a server that is the boss. There is no boss. Anyway. We're getting ahead of ourselves. The Git philosophy is really important to understand, and that will really help cement the rest. And so I want to get to the point where we understand the Git basics, not to the point where we're Git experts. Okay, good. I think that's going to be It's it's one of those things. If you know 20% of Git, you can do 98% of what you need to do. Okay. I'm getting there. I still do get stuck on some parts, but uh, where I'm just paralyzed and I don't know what to do next. But I remember that very, very well, because when the words don't really mean anything, the UI is really scary. And you're sitting there going, if I press the wrong button, that's 20 hours of work gone. Poof. Yeah, I do have a habit of every once in a while grabbing the whole folder, zipping it up and stuffing it over here and putting some long drawn out explanation of what version that was. Well, I can replace that for you with tagging, which is a way of permanently saving a state. Okay. So that's that's one thing to look forward to. Okay, well, we, we should not get ahead of ourselves, right? Indeed, we shouldn't. So that's basically where we stand in the big picture of our journey. So, you know, it's really fitting that we've landed an even number 100 and that I got to have cake. <laughs> it's a good time. <laughs> well, I have to say, this was one of the most enjoyable episodes ever. I, I just, maybe it's because I got to talk a lot. I don't know, but I uh, I really enjoyed it. Well, good, because these are, it, it's, yeah, good. Thank you. Um, yes, it's been a while since we've done this because I've forgotten that I'm supposed to tell you all that until next time, you should be very, very happy with all of your computing. If you learn as much from BART each week as I do, I'd like you to go over to lets-talk.ie and press one of the buttons over there to help support him. He does 98% of the work here. I'm just the stooge that listens to him and asks the dumb questions. If you go over to lets-talk.ie, you can support him on Patreon, you can donate via PayPal, or you can use one of his referral links. I really hope you'll go over and help him out. In the meantime, you can contact me at Podfeet or check out all of the shows we do over there over at podfeet.com. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.